I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 26, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. We took a bit of a breather, but we're back in full effect for the 2020, and so grateful you are tuning in. Episode 26 of the Up for Life podcast is brought to you by the second annual Virgin Islands Jam Fest. The Virgin Islands Jam Fest 2020 is being held March 5 through 7 on the island of St. John, Virgin Islands. Set against the historic sugar mill plantation ruins from the 1700s and boasting sweeping views of Keneal Bay and St. Thomas, as well as the Caribbean Sea, Virgin Islands Jam Fest, or VI Jam Fest, it's truly an island adventure to be experienced. On-site camping is available through their gorgeous mountaintop campground. It's also one of the most affordable ways to stay on the island of St. John. Uh, this year's musical lineup uh, includes Charlie Tuna of Jurassic 5 fame, the ever-popular Zach Deputy, Pacifier, and a number of regional and underground artists. Uh, you can find the information on vijamfest.com. That's vijamfest.com. Now, I'm super stoked to let y'all know that I'm actually able to give away two tickets by way of the Up Full Life podcast. And by two tickets, I mean two three-day festival passes that come with a three-day camping setup for two people. That is a, a U.S. dollar value of 630 bucks. That's the value right there. And is a tent setup included? Airfare not included? Again, that's March 5 through 7, 2020. VI Jam Fest st john virgin islands you can find out all the information on vijamfest.com as far as winning the tickets what do you got to do well there's going to be a post on the up full life facebook page simply facebook.com backslash up full life u-p-f-u-l-l-i-f-e there'll be a pinned post at the top and we just need you to share that post it'll have information about the festival as well as the Up for Life podcast. 
If, by chance, you do not use the Facebook, and I know a lot of you do not, you're still eligible to win. So uh, you just need to hit me up at b.gets at upfullife.com. Just send me an email at b.gets at upfullife.com and leave a short review for this podcast on the iTunes review page for Up Full Life Podcast. So it's pretty simple. If you want to get down to VI Jam Fest, you either hit facebook.com backslash upfullife and share and like the pinned post about the VI Jam Fest, or you simply send me an email at b.gets at upfullife.com and review the Up Full Life podcast on iTunes. Pretty simple stuff. Really stoked. I want to say thank you to my man Mo Angelo who uh, is involved in the VI Jam Fest and facilitated this sponsorship and ticket giveaway. Mo is an old friend through the Spirit of Swanee Music Park. Super solid dude. You may have heard him on this very podcast when we interviewed uh, Mo and Pat from Because of the Lotus, an art installation that appears often at Spirit of Swanee Music Park, but at that time we chatted with them. It was at the Emerald Cup, the cannabis event here in Northern California. Uh, Emerald Cup 2018. So if you're curious about Mo, check out Because of the Lotus and check them out on the Up for Life podcast some time ago. And please encourage you to enter the contest to win tickets to the VI Jam Fest, March 5 through 7, 2020, St. John Virgin Islands. And we're going to let you ride out with a little bit more of The Loop, Shafiq Hussein. One of my favorite albums of 2019. episode 26 took a brief pause for the cause and uh, hope everyone had a wonderful holiday season and new year it was an exciting time even though the podcast was a bit silent for the month of December Uh, put a lot of my focus into some of the writing and journalism that uh, custom to especially around this time of year 
So if you're curious, um, you can check out a number of pieces I put together on Up For Life and Live For Live music, including Up For Life's 19 favorite records of 2019, which includes uh, short reviews, playlists, clickable links, 19 records reviewed, and 19 more honorable mentions. I'm also super proud and really touched by the uh, response to my Big Cypress 20 Years Later reflection. It was called Choosing Our Own Religion, A Diary of Big Cypress and the Long Gig. And it was inspired by the podcast After Midnight about Big Cypress, but basically just a personalized look back in the rearview mirror or a hop into the Wayback Machine, as I'm prone to saying. So check that out on Live for Live Music. Also have coverage of Lettuce's New Year's Eve throwdown here at the Independent in San Francisco. Coverage of the myriad of funk that was available during the week leading up to New Year's here in the Bay, including a monster dumpster funk show with members of Tower of Power and Greg Erico from Sly Stone. And we had the master sounds for two nights at the chapel, touched on that. We had a double whammy co-headline at the Fillmore for two nights. Carl Denson's Tiny Universe celebrating the Diesel's 63rd birthday, as he does annually every year at the Fillmore. And that was paired up with the Motet, who are super hot on the heels of their album Death or Devotion. And they co-headlined at the Fillmore. There were some also sweet throwdowns around the way at the Boom Boom Room, including Will Blades, who was on this very podcast. He put together his WB's project with uh, Will Bernard. So they did a late night. So yeah, it was a really active time, and you can read about all that and more on upfullife.com and liveforlivemusic.com. You are hearing the sweetest thing, Mahogany Remix, El Boogie and the Refugee Camp All-Stars with that sick fat back funk from that cop show in the 70s. Salam Remy on the remix. Check that out. And we'll move on to the interview. Feature interview today is with guitarist Ryan Jalbert of the Motet. Episode 26 of the Up For Life podcast. We're really lucky to have Ryan Jalbert on the show. Ryan is the guitarist of the Motet, and uh, he's been with the band for upwards of 15 years now. So it was really cool to sit down and chop it up with him for about an hour about his entire journey and his career up until this point. 
Now, I've known Ryan for a few years now, not super well, but we met at Purple Hatter's Ball, 2014, I want to say. And, uh, you know, I've always paid attention to the motet for many years, going back to when it was Dave Watts' motet in the Berkfest era of the early 2000s. So, uh, yeah, it was just really educational and, uh, and just enjoyable to sit down with Ryan while he was here in the Bay Area with the motet. As I mentioned earlier, they did a co-headline with Carl Denson's Tiny Universe for two nights at the Fillmore here in San Francisco. So after that, on the Sunday evening, uh, we linked up uh, on Van Ness in San Francisco for a lengthy chat. So for 2020, I'm going to stop giving away all the goods in the intro and just basically play the interview. Um, but yes, you can expect uh, him to really touch on everything from his roots in Boston area, Western Mass to be specific, um, through guitar and then college and then his music career. So yeah, sit back and have a listen to Ryan Jalbert of the Motet on episode 26 of the Up Full Life podcast. But we'll let it ride out a little bit with What You Gonna Bring, which is uh, the second track on Death or Devotion, the Motet's record from 2019. So we'll hear a little bit more of that, and then we'll hear from Ryan. here in San Francisco down on Van, Van Ness and uh, this is the Upful Life podcast. I'm your host B Getz. It is uh, just a couple days before New Year's Eve and I am honored, lucky, privileged to be sitting here with my friend Ryan Jalbert who's the guitarist of the Motet and a musician who I've been following for quite a few years now so welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. We've been talking about this for a minute, and yeah. uh, I appreciate your listening to the pod and you know chiming in constructively along the way. So it's super cool that uh, that we get to do this while you're here in the Bay. It's true. I'm a fan and a listener. Well, it's reciprocal. You know, awesome. I'm also a fan like and it. a listener. Yeah. You know, um, of course, to the Motet and you know, really anything that you're going to get into. So we're going to hear all about that stuff. 
Uh, I usually like to start with like why we're here. You know, so you happen to be in the Bay because you did uh, two nights at the Fillmore, co-headline with uh, Carl Denson's Tiny Universe. So let's just talk a little bit about that. Have you played the Fillmore before? Yes. I The first time I played the Fillmore, I was touring with this folk singer named Brett Denon for a few years. I remember. Um, Ron Johnson on bass? We was with Ron yeah, Johnson yeah. on bass anymore. Uh, but, um, Ron's a man. Ron, want you to come on the show if you're listening. What up, Ron? <laughs> Shout out, Ron Johnson. Um yeah, so, uh, you know, Brett's from Oakland originally, um, so he lives in L.A. now, but he um, has a strong fan base in the Bay Area, so got to play the Fillmore with him a few times, and then um, the Motet has played the Fillmore, I guess this was our third and fourth time. Okay, this cool. This weekend, yeah. Right on, and it was, a, you know, it was an interesting cross-section, I thought, of, of the two fan bases, which are similar, but uh, not the same, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, the Denson fan base and the Motet fan base. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're older guys. And, you know, been, if we're going back to OG Motet, the lifespan of both bands is roughly the same, late 90s. Sure. You know, Carl taking a break from the Grey Boys, puts together, they called them Sidecar Projects back then. Right. And he did uh, Tiny Universe, and as we talked about off-air, Dave, your drummer, Dave Watts, you know, Dave Watts Motet. It's been going on since the Burkefest days. Yeah. So, uh, shit, it's it's crazy to think. Now you got four shows at the Fillmore, Legendary Room. Did you feel any sort of, like, uh, the Bay Area, you know, psychedelic revolution tradition in that room with the chandeliers and stuff, or are you kind of just playing another room? No, I swear, I always do. There's a really strong vibe in that room, and, you know, I don't know if I necessarily believe that rooms hold energy or whatever, but if they do then that room is definitely you know has a vibe to it um yeah it just feels special you know you could just tell that it has a lot of history and um with all the posters all over the wall you can just you know you get a sense of the importance of it definitely yeah it was funny because uh, your friend my friend keith photographer keith grinder yeah. he came we did a short interview today and he stayed with us for a minute uh, while he was here, and he was talking about how it was like such an amazing experience to be in there and a photograph there, and then of course Jeffrey Dupuis, one also been on the pod and one of our favorite photographers from New Orleans. Yeah, it was his bucket list Virgin night at oh, uh, wow. the Fillmore last night too, and he was like right up front shooting you guys as well. Okay. Yeah, I was really enjoyed it. I thought the the co headline idea was cool. Um, you've been on the road for a minute now with the Death and Devotion tour, right? Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about the record and talk about the tour, but generally for the podcast, we kind of like go in the way back machine and sort of just put the pieces together. So uh, you're a guitarist. Obviously, you're from the Northeast, right? Yeah. Western Massachusetts. Chicopee, Massachusetts. Chicopee. Is that near like Westfield, Worcester? Yeah. It's it's right near Westfield. It's um, near Springfield and Hoyoke and... uh, the closest music town to me growing up was Northampton. Yeah, the yeah. Iron Horse. Yeah. Right on. And all those venues, yeah. Yeah, cool, man. So when did you start uh, fucking around on the guitar? Um, well, it's funny. So um, just for, you know, it was just Christmas. I don't know when this is going to air, but it, um, I was just back east hanging with my family for Christmas. And they tracked down my original guitar. It was like a 60s Sears harmony guitar whatever you know um and so uh that was really special it just brought back a lot of memories like the smell of being 11 years old and being in my grandparents at or you know upstairs in my grandparents place and um and kind of like puttering around that so you know when I was 11 um I was 
kind of, you know, I'd go visit my grandparents and I had uh, an uncle, my uncle Dan, played guitar. And uh, he was like the youngest uncle on my dad's side. He was the cool uncle. He had like a cool jean jacket and cool hair. He had like some Les Pauls and some, you know, some great guitars. And um, so he kind of like really turned me on to the instrument. Just kind of seeing, seeing him just pick it up and actually create sound just with his hands. It blew my mind as a child. Yeah. And then, um, so that was, uh, that was around the time I started learning. My parents wanted me to actually study an instrument and take lessons. And my neighbor across the street from me, um, this kid Jeremy, had just picked up the drum set. So if we were going to play together, the next step would be we need a guitar. So that, I just started playing guitar. Um, kind of wanted to be a drummer like, like a lot of musicians I know. Sure. But, um, yeah, so I started taking lessons when I was 11 and kind of just did it casually, although, I mean, it felt casual at the time, but I know that for the first, like, six, seven, eight years that I was playing, I didn't miss a day. So it was like a hobby, but I was obsessed, you know? Um, but it was kind of like, I was juggling, like, playing a lot of soccer and sports and stuff like that. And then it was honestly just like, I really, you know, high school was interesting for me, and it was like, I, you know, people are trying to find their place in high school, and it was socially, it was kind of a weird time, um, and that's when I really dove deep into the instrument. I would just, you know, I didn't really have, like, much of a friend group, and I would just come home and, like, just play and play and play, um, and then um, it was time to figure out what I wanted to do after high school, and aside from, like... <laughs> seeing a bunch of fish shows and stuff like that, you know, I figured it was, um, I, I would just dive into music. And so I went to, you mentioned Westfield. I, I went to school in Westfield, um, studied jazz guitar up there. Right on. Yeah. What was the name of the school? Westfield State College. Westfield State College. The reason yeah. I bring up Westfield, um, is that I, I went to college in Vermont and Burlington and I, uh, dated a young woman whose family was from Westfield. And that was also sort of on the route between Jersadelphia and Burlington. Uh -huh. And I had a good friend in Hardwick, one of my best buddies, Keith, the KOD. Uh, cool. So I spent just an inordinate amount of time in that little pocket of Western Mass for someone that wasn't from there or didn't go to school there. I was there a little bit. Plus yeah. it was sort of a hotbed of like fish culture, that little region. It really was. Um, but before we get to fish, when you pick up the car at 11, or pick up the guitar at 11, um, what is what is in the the old Walkman or Discman, whatever it was at that time? What what are you playing or listening to that's making you sort of think guitar or think music? Did you have like go to bands of of, of seventh eighth grade era, or were you already into Fish? Right. Well, no. So I guess you know that would be like ninety three, you know ninety four. I was eleven and twelve. Um, so I was listening to the you know grunge music and the rock music of the day which was like for that time in music um there was cool guitar all over the radio yeah um so that was inspiring but even before that my dad had just got you know he was a big um rock and blues fan and so i was listening to the blues and like right old classic rock before I even started playing. I just, something about it, I just loved it. Um, and what so I remember some of those first bluesmen that were like just hearing them well. 
B.B. Uh, King, sure. you know, just listen. I remember listening to B.B. King on the school bus, you know, on the way to school and like getting that feeling where like you feel like the lump in your throat, you're like getting choked up, you know, and I was a child and I was, yeah. uh, you know, I was, I was so young and it, it just had this depth to it. Um, and I couldn't get over it. I remember just these, like, these rides to school, just going to, whatever, fourth grade or fifth grade <laughs> or something like that, just showing up, like, shook from whatever I was listening to on the Walkman, you know? Yeah. Um, another, you know, I was into, my dad was really into Clapton, and then I discovered, like, the John Mayles Blues Breakers, that album sure. that he did, yeah. and, you know, Cream, and, 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 uh, and I was into Hendrix, and it just, so right around that time, was when I was introduced to the guitar, and my dad knew a couple chords. He showed me, like, um, Heart of Gold by Neil Young and, you know, Knocking on Heaven's Door and stuff like that. So that's yeah. kind of... That was when Guns N' Roses were playing Knocking, too, so it was kind of in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Like the circa 91 when Illusions yep. came out. Interesting. I was going to ask, what about Stevie Ray Vaughan? Oh, yeah. See, because I'm, I'm not a huge blues guy, but I'm a musicologist, you know, and I firmly believe that... You know, he's the greatest of all time. Just period. Whatever. I mean, I love Hendrix. You know, I've got my favorites, like the Garcias of the world. But yeah, you're making me pick one guitarist who can do it all, you know. Oh, sure. And do it in his own. So he can do Hendrix and he can make it his own. I mean, we could go down that rabbit hole. But when you talk about bluesmen, and that was who I heard right around the time you're talking about. I didn't even play guitar. Yeah. I was into a friend of mine's family. It was just the Ehrlichs, mm -hmm. heavy into Stevie Ray. and That was wizardry of another planet yeah he was he was like a pure channel you know he was able to you you were just seeing someone just completely remove themselves as an obstacle and just channel something else because there was never you were you're not hearing any like any thought process happening in his music he's just feeling so much so deeply and it's just un unobstructed just blues magic yeah. you know and tone like yeah his tone is second oh my god his, his, his vibrato cry. is just perfect yeah yeah and his story is is a traditionally beautifully tragic Ugh. tale and it's uh, heartbreaking really yeah but interesting so you classic rock with pops on the way to the of school in fourth fifth grade blues getting the guitar grunge i you know i was a hair metal guy i i, I did dig grunge you know a bit not nirvana so much but um you know, Pearl Jam, mm -hmm. Mother Love Bone, Soundgarden, Alice in Change, probably my yeah. favorite of all those bands. Uh -huh. um, at what point in time uh, are you introduced to, you know, the sort of Grateful Dead, Diaspora, Fish world, um, and eventually, like, when am I seeing a photo of you with a head full of dreadlocks? Like, let's do that, <laughs> that little right. chunk of time. Um, yeah, so... I went to I went to high school in Holyoke, Mass, and um, met my good buddy Brian Donahue. Shout out Brian Donahue if he listens to this. Um, and Brian got me into the Dead, and and I didn't really know anything about the Dead. I, you know, I, I didn't really understand it. I didn't dive in on the periphery. It seemed like a little a little like. Um, a little soft or noodly or like a little indirect all the things that like i love most about it now is sure. what, what what i you know is because i was listening to as far as guitar world i was listening to these these guitars that were just like 
you know, kind of screaming everything they're saying. Um, and then so I didn't re under, uh, really understand their approach. Um, and of course, the, the, they just have that, that intangible quality to it that you, it was an acquired taste and now I love it. I'm such a huge fan. Um, so, but Brian got me into uh, Fish and the Grateful Dead in 96 when I was a freshman in high school. And um, so by the time my parents let me go see a Fish show, which it wasn't until I was 16, I think it was because like every time they came through town, it, like it was in the papers I and mean, right. it wasn't always good news, you know, so they were a little protective Leary. of me. Yeah. And so I finally went to uh, see them in Worcester in 98. Um, I was there. Yeah. For sure. Great run. I, I only went wipeout time. When they played in and out of Wipeout? So that was the Friday, and I okay. went to the, the... Or that was the 27th, rather. Right. Um, and then I went on the 29th. It was gotcha. a, it was a weekday. It was a school night, yeah. Um, November-ish. November 29th, yeah. Yeah, right after Right after Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I had... By the time I saw my first show, I had all these tapes, and I knew, like... I had all the records. I knew basically all the songs, like everything... That was not, you know, not the studio stuff. And so going in there, it was my first show, but like, you know, I just was fully on board. I was, it blew my mind. I just had no idea what I was in for. Um, I just went with a friend who was like kind of half interested and she was like kind of sitting down for, and I was just like standing up, just having my whole world just cracked open you know from yes. like from rolling up there and seeing license plates from all over that was my first time like the, oh my god all these people just like are just driving to all these shows and like all i was just taking in all of that i couldn't i couldn't handle it like i honestly like i still have chills thinking about it now because that's beautiful um you know, seeing the lights drop and then everyone, like, people in the hallways are just scrambling to their yes. seats and the electricity. And then they, like, dropped into, it was, they opened with Paul and Silas. That was, like, the one tune right. I didn't know. Um, that was a nugget for people back then. Yeah, right? yeah. Great, great tune, though. But um, I just... I mean, it'd be a nugget today, too. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, I just, the show was just, I just thought it was the best thing ever. Um, I did not sleep that night. I went home and I literally just laid awake, laid awake in bed, just trying to process what the hell happened. You know, I was totally sober. I was just, just lying there, just like twirling my thumbs just until it was time to go to school. And then I remember going back to school the next day, just with this feeling like, <laughs> none of you guys understood like what just happened to me last you were night. in on a secret yeah it was, you felt like you were in on as a little secret yeah thing. because there was only like a few kids in my school that were into fish and you yeah know, so and you, you kind of then you like develop that camaraderie but um but it was it was a life-changing moment for sure i bet man i give me chills telling the story um, for me that experience was the dead i'm a little older than you but like yeah my half-sister carol took me to see uh, the uh, I've told the story on the pod so many times I'm not going to even do it. But yes, I saw the dead when I was young, and uh, I stayed up all night. I was at school the next day, glowing, you know, yeah. eighth grade, whatever it was. So, yeah, that's beautiful, man. And then so from there, you're like, I need more of that, and you went and saw as much fish as you could for a minute. Yeah. So you know, I was in high school. I got a car and um, saw some shows in '99, and then when I graduated in 2000, 
that summer I saw like nine shows. Yeah. Um, and then, because I knew I was I was going to go to music school the next year, and so that you know I knew it was time to focus on on my music and actually taking this thing very seriously. Um, during high school, you know, aside from Fish, there was just like this amazing jam scene. Fuck yeah, um, chakra. Yeah, 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 like a really progressive, you know, quote unquote jam scene. Though there was like amazing. It was like you know, indie say, jam almost. Yeah, you could say like slip. fusion. If well, the slip was kings. I saw more slip shows than than any other band. I've probably seen that band like seventy, eighty times, which is yeah. kind of my connection to the Motet. We can we can work into that if we want, but um, we can love on the slip for a second. I seen I saw them. I'm not gonna hijack your story, but I saw them a lot. Not seventy, eighty, but a lot, and and they're special. You know, yeah. But when we're talking about in the late '90s, when before they'd kind of turned that corner as songwriters and they were just mm-hmm. playing, you know, jamming jazzy. Yeah, it was like a revelation. Yeah, you know, it really felt it felt like super tribal. Like I remember being at shows and like it was like everyone in the crowd turned into like jungle animals or something like <laughs> that. You know, and they like they would just transform a room, but they could take it way down. And um, and just have these super quiet meditative moments, yeah. and then just get frantic and just bring the energy way up. And I just love that. I love how bold they were. You know, they really made a lot of um, really bold choices. Yeah, musically. Yeah, um, fearless. Yeah, you know, for better or for worse, in terms of like their success. Yeah, they they, they were true to the art. Yeah, maybe even to a fault. Yeah, and they really took a lot of chances to the point where they, you know, they would play totally free, and it was a trio, and they all played together so many, you know, they have so many hours playing together that they were able to like make it work even when it fell apart. But they would always walk that edge, which I just loved. Yeah, you know, they would just, and that's where like the magic happens, you know. But sometimes it, sometimes it doesn't, but. Well, that's that's what this whole fucking thing is about. Exactly, is the edge and and that, and sometimes as Kraz said on the pod a couple episodes ago, like sometimes yeah you do crash and burn, but that's mm-hmm. part of it. You got to test the waters. You got to take it there. And if you're playing it safe, then what's the point? Exactly. You know, but it's interesting you bring up the slip just because they were such a influential, seminal, flagship band from that era. My best friend who I went to like Hebrew school and and grew up with it was their tour manager Robbie Krevlin Robbie WK mm-hmm. um, so he so I was really plugged into the slip f- pretty much since you know Providence yeah you know, like and uh, yeah it was an amazing time you were, we were saying about that region so who else Chakra Slip what are you out what are you well like? so the Miracle Orchestra oh. is how I met Garrett yes right that's on my outline for yeah. yeah yeah so um, oh, they were also a force of nature, revelation back then. Yeah. Holy shit. Jeff Scott, right? Yep. Yep. Jeff Scott, Bill Carbone, Jared Sims, right. and uh, and Garrett. Garrett. He yep. was like a prodigy then. Yeah. A young wizard. And he looked so young. Yeah. And, uh, and we were just like, who was this kid? And so, you know, I was just like the, the little kid hanging out at, you know, after all the shows being like, oh, you guys did a little different intro on that one, you know, or whatever. Like, I was just, I, I had a bunch of questions. And so they just kind of, like, got to know me. And they were like, wow, this guy, like, is always around at all the shows. And um, But my friends, and I had this great friend group um, from Western Mass. And we were just driving around to seeing everything we could. And it was, 
often kind of in like the jazz vein, jazz funk, and whatever, you know, those are loose terms, but um, some of our favorites were the Slip and the Miracle Orchestra. And um, so I started, I, I was studying a little bit with Jeff Scott and with Brad and kind of like became friends with those guys. And I was playing with um, this singer, uh, Leslie Helpert. You know, uh, Leslie? Yeah, I remember her name from mm-hmm. back then. I don't, I can't place the music, but yeah, I feel like Valor maybe managed them. Yeah. Her? Yeah. Yeah, I remember. So yeah, I have a vague recollection of her. Yeah, and so um, my connection from all of that to the motet was, um, well, basically when I graduated from college, um, my buddy Brian, my, who like introduced me to all this music, was moving out to Boulder, and I just wanted to go somewhere. And he and his lady were moving out, and I was like, "Cool, well, I'm gonna come." Right. <laughs> and so we'll get a two bedroom, and um, and then jokingly, I was like, "Yeah, well, I'll just join, you know, String Cheese or the Motet, the only two Boulder bands I knew." Um, but uh, shortly after moving out there, Leslie Helper was playing around the area, um, and her manager was uh, Ali Constein Garrett's ex girlfriend, and so. She kind of connect. The motet was kind of trying out a couple different guitars. They were kind of between guitarists, and she kind of like, you know, got me in for a little audition. Which was okay. at the time the motet was doing these, um, this like February residence. I think it was yeah, it was February residency at um, the old, whatever Bianchi venue that was. I think it was like the old old Coyotes. Where they were playing every Wednesday, and it was a, a way for them to. Um, it was called the Motet Playground, and every week, band members would bring in original music, and they would just like read charts down, just to like have it like a writing session, like a live writing session. And so I went and sat in on that, and then I got the gig, and then I just started touring, and then it, you know, fourteen years <laughs> later, I've just been at it. So that's uh, just for timeline wise. Uh, 2005. It was 2005. Okay, and there's a residency, and uh, how familiar with the Motet? Because you said, oh, I'll go out there and maybe I'll join Cheese or the Motet. So back in Western Mass, you were familiar with the Motet. Right. Very or somewhat? Somewhat. I had seen them a couple times. I caught a Burkefest set. Same. Back in the day, I forget, maybe it was like 99. I went to the... I missed the first one, and then I went to all the rest of them. So, like, 99 to 2003, whenever right. they discontinued it. Um, so, that, that was... I got to see a lot of bands there. I read um, some reviews of uh, 02, 03. 01, 02, 03. Of oh, nice. So, I come I'm sure I've read them. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. And, and yeah, wasn't Dave Watts uh, Chakra also? Yeah, yeah which yeah. I didn't know Chakra... I think I'd known, you know, I heard you knew the, the name, name right? but they I, were done before you got in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had this sort of, we, I cut the tail end of them when I got to Burlington in 96, and we would hear about them a little bit, and they may have even played uh, Club Toast around then. Oh, but, okay. uh, but yeah, so that's how I, I knew of the motet. When they played uh, the Burkefest, it was like, oh, yeah, the drummer from Chakra's new thing. Right. That was, that was like my first oh, okay. frame of reference. Like Dave Watts' motet. Oh, that's the drummer from Chakra. Chakra was this like underground, legendary Northeast thing that even like Fish name checked in their uh-huh. thing, and you know, so small world shit. I know, yeah. yeah. So, oh, not to hijack, man. I gotta no, get no. better at this. Oh uh, five, you go play the gig, uh, and and they say join the band. Yeah. Okay, so who of the current lineup was in the band at that time? Garrett and Dave. 
Garrett and Dave. Yeah. Okay, so you, you have some real fucking seniority with this this crew. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. You know, Dom was in the band at that time, and so that was, you know... Had you cut the dreads yet? I did. I cut the dreads. Um, no, in... I had a friend come out for Thanksgiving, so that was like November that she cut him off. Okay. And, uh, yeah, but, that's like always a tipping point. I had dreads for almost a decade, and like, you know, yeah. just like that's such a tipping point in life. I was just curious when when that happened. Yeah. So, so you, you jump on with with Motad, and you freshly moved to Colorado, mm-hmm. um, and you never really, sounds like, like played with a national touring band. You never really got in the van and got on the road. No. And they were already fairly well established, right? They, yeah. They could get out and gig. Yeah, so that I thought, you know, that was the coolest thing. It was, um, you know, we were going out for three weeks. It was basically like, you have the gig, come what by. What did you have to learn? Like, what was the, um, what they tell you you needed to do? There was like 20 or 30 tunes, and there was like some sheet music to some of them, and then learn the rest by ear, and... Um, you know, I'd go to Dom's house and work with him on some of the melody stuff. And then, you know, it was really like there was hardly any rehearsals or anything. I don't... I'm trying to think if we did one actual rehearsal. Well, you had that um, residency that sounded like almost rehearsals. Like well, sheets and working shit out. Yeah, but it wasn't like playing all of the, the actual music that right. we're, you know, we're going to be doing. But, um, yeah, then we hit the road for three weeks and... Um, I saw that, got to see the West Coast. It was my first time out there. Yeah. You know, touring in a band. It was the coolest. Yeah. Right on. And then what was the first record that you heard on? Uh, Instrumental Descent, which came out the next year. And was that your first time in the studio? Um, Yeah. Well, I had done recording. Right. um, And actually, Dave recorded that one at his place. Self-produced? At his barn, yeah. Yeah. And that's when he was kind of getting into Ableton. So those those records were kind of like Dave's like Ableton experiments in okay. some ways. So they kind of they kind of have that sound. Um, but, the uh, instrumental record is what you what you're referring yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's definitely. I was listening to your catalog prepping for the interview. You can hear like a tangible difference, not just in the song style or whatever, but just the sound uh, from say the early stuff like Play or whatever. Yeah, and then you know. In the instrumental records, that's like 06, right? So mm-hmm. Ableton is like the new fucking thing. Right. And then, and we'll get to it, when you listen to the, the new record, Production Value, it's like another world. You know? Yeah. It's really authentic, sounding really warm. You could tell me it was from 1979, mm-hmm. I believe it. Um, did you have uh, any writing? Were you involved in the writing at all back in 05, 06? Or you just like show up and play the chords? Kind yeah, of? I've always been into the writing process. I've always been, you know, because it was... That was always encouraged. So, and that's a group think thing with yeah. the motet. Um, well, yes and no. Um, it's easiest to just bring in through composed pieces because then right. everyone can play it down. And if it's good, then you have a tune. And if it's, you know, if it needs a lot of work, sometimes it can kind of fall by the wayside, and the stronger tunes are going to get played more. And you know, you might come back to it or you might not. So it's it's always better to try to bring in. Um, something that's as, as composed as possible. But, yeah, I, I've always done, um, I've always enjoyed writing, and, and so I did, I didn't write that much on that, I had a, maybe a couple things, but um, but I was writing for the for the band back then, yeah. Right on. That's cool, because, you know, a lot of cats, they, 
they don't get that opportunity not just to join a touring band and get in the van and see the west coast but also to write make a record like a lot of you know that's that's a lot right away yeah. and you were a young cat and man you obviously have made the most of it here we are 14 years later but that's a hell of a handoff you know yeah. just that whole opportunity in a in a nutshell yeah you know a lot of these cats work really hard and toil in obscurity for a long time mm -hmm. and that's pretty cool that you know you you just sort of hopped on and and you know enjoying the ride all this time later and um with regard to the sound of the band so I could ask questions about the early stuff, but you weren't there. But I feel like it had a really, it sounded like sort of that hybrid funk jam band vibe in the in more, you know, just funky sort of meters influence stuff early. Right. And then uh, sometime around when you join and, and then Jan's and such, uh, there's a decided romance with Afrobeat vibes, you know, in some of the stuff, especially live right. Afrobeat jams. Was that like a concerted effort? Or was like uh, band members like, really into Afrobeat at that time or how did that yeah so the, the realm right when I when I joined the band it had been um I guess for the past year they were really going in that in that direction um already underway when, <coughs> it was already under, yeah like a strong Thela influence and with the percussion and everything it was um and that was great it was great for me because I had a couple Thela records but you know, I didn't really dive into it and, you know, kind of just listen to it like on a, on a surface level. I enjoyed it, but um, then I got to study that music and that was a game changer. I mean, yeah, that is just so powerful, you know, and meditative at the same yeah. time. Um, and so that stuff was really fun to play and you uh, really kind of, you know, it really transformed my playing because, you know, jazz school can just... You can learn so much, but um, it's kind of hard to process everything. You, there's a lot of unlearning that goes on when you're trying to like um, be be true to a style, you know. And and if you're gonna if you're gonna study jazz, it's good to like actually dive in a hundred percent, you know. And just and just you know, I I kind of abandoned like bending and vibrato and I just wanted to sound like a jazz guitarist and then when I joined the motet you know playing stuff like playing these rhythm parts from you know from the Fela stuff to the James Brown stuff you know it was just such a different type of guitar playing and so I learned a lot it um, really made me appreciate rhythm playing so much um, and now it's really my favorite kind of guitar playing. Yeah. I love playing funky rhythm you could tell, yeah, for sure. Um, and you really answered a part of what I was going to ask, which is here we are talking about you, sort of the whole uh, arc of the bluesman that's screaming to sort of the subtleties of other types of guitar playing. And then we're talking about, you know, the jam world and particularly fish and the sort of like frenetic tension release explosions and stuff and, and the sort of arena rock shred nature of that. And all the way on the other side of the pendulum is the discipline and meditation of whether it's the upstroke in a reggae, dub reggae kind of thing, or in our case, we're talking Afrobeat, where, yeah, and even Fish fucked around with this, with the sands of the world sometime back in the day, with that sort of just locking into the three notes, if you will. But, but really, with Afrobeat, somebody that's coming from a place where you're making statements, like, especially as a feature instrument, to... Not just unlearn, 
but to basically it's sort of it's it's a it's almost like a it's a discipline and then there's like hundreds of years of struggle and and culture and intercontinental cultural exchanges mm-hmm. in those little ass notes right that you're hearing that are in essence like passed down in the oral tradition from yeah yeah it's really taking the guitar and making it a percussion instrument and in you know in that music um you know it's it's definitely it's african music and so every instrument is really a percussion instrument right you know and so everything kind of just just fits together and and uh you know, when you're learning it, it's like, oh, okay, this is the phrase, and it's two bars and whatever, and I just play that the whole time. But then, how do you place it right where it needs to be over and over again? Because if it moves, it's, could, yeah. it's you're just not, it's not it. You know, it's got to be, it's got to feel locked. just locked. Yeah, it's got to be right there. And so, um, it, you know, I learned just kind of a new way of listening um, and a new, a new approach in general. Um, that you, you know, that don't really learn in school, like things like just the point is to make everyone else you're playing with sound as good as possible, Yeah. you know, so then everyone feels good, you know, it's just about like bringing the whole thing up, you know, lifting up like the whole band and listening, um, you know, it's not about waiting for your solo or like right. you know and then playing the new whatever new shit you're working on you know in the shed or whatever quite the opposite yeah yeah and and there's a power in that too like not playing it like not shredding not screaming but just being a part of the greater whole and i think that that's the magic of afrobeat in a nutshell was when everybody's on that locked in and Absolutely. surrendering to that flow if you will like Afrobeat is is magic, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a force of nature. So I always really dug your forays into Afrobeat and how, while not appropriating it, um, there are elements of that music, at least especially in that era of your career, that you adopted into your own songs. You weren't writing Afrobeat, but there were elements of Afrobeat and sort of rhythms and the sort of meditative two and three note guitar licks and stuff. Yes. And I thought that was like really cool. And then you sort of... Uh, you did that, mm-hmm. and then you evolved, and, and with that came, you know, personnel changes and such. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that period of time, because I've always sort of paid attention, if you will, like I knew about it back in the Burkfest days that we're talking about now, mm-hmm. but really it was like when, right. you know, and you guys played at Bear Creek, Purple Hatter's Ball, etc., and I was living down there at the time, and you guys had a pretty strong vibe, people down in the Swanee family and extended yeah. big motet. Uh, you know, proponents, fans. So, um, before we get into the change, I want to talk just a little bit about that era. Like, um, was there a concerted effort to kind of get away from the long-winded jamming as much and maybe like more vocal-fronted stuff and, and songs, if you will? Because it it's sort of like an evolution. Yeah. Of, of, like, were you a part of that? Were you like, we want to write more songs, like tunes? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so Jan's left... Oh, I was mispronouncing Jan's Jan's left right before I joined and then so the band was newly an instrumental band when I joined in 2005 Um, you know and we had made a couple records like that Um, a couple of us kind of 
you know, we weren't touring super hard, so a couple of us kind of went and did our own thing. Garrett and I were t- uh, touring with this guy, Dwayle. Like, ah, dude, touring. love Dwayle. You know, he's, he's sort of a, I know about he's the a, okay player world. He's a G. He's, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's kind of in like the slum village. Yeah, Still a Detroit squad. Yeah, he's all over. He's on a couple slum records. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think Dilla produced some checks on his first record, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. That's cool. You were, you were performing live yeah we did some touring with him and we did like a europe tour and everything and that was awesome every day and um and so you know there was a lot of lineup changes in the band for a little while and then um in 2009 maybe it was digging in era when uh no so it was after i maybe dig deep did come out around then um but then we all got back together, and um, Jans rejoined the band, um, and we decided, you know, we had been, like, doing a bunch of gigs, and um, Joey was a full-time member by this point, um, and we realized that what we were best at, although we loved playing some Afrobeat, and we loved playing some electronic, you know, electronica-type stuff, we even had some, like foray into like the indie kind of sound what we were really what felt best for us was funk and um it kind of because that was always kind of like our bread and butter and we felt like we just kind of didn't really focus on it for a little while um and so we kind of really just dove back in a hundred percent um on funk and soul and um so that's why we that that record the motet that the self-titled, self-titled record was sort of us like it was a statement of us kind of like starting fresh yeah you know and so the last three records have more of a consistent sound than the previous ones i think um and we kind of we kind of really uh, had more of an identity by that point right on yeah you can definitely hear i would i would say you know where you talk about the starting over point but there's merit to the whole catalog. It's mm. just like, I guess, the the current band as we know it, you can sort of maybe pinpoint that 2013, 14, I guess, whenever mm-hmm. Jans came back and you guys made this record. Um, and, and you guys enjoyed a lot of success at that time with that record and that, with that show, you know? Mm. So, um, I don't know, you know, was anytime this sort of thing happens in the community, people want to know what's up. I don't, it's not really looking for drama, you know, per se, but um, what was that like when, like, okay, so you self-titled record, you regroup, you're sort of all team on the same page, and then you're not just a band member, but the front man says that, uh, you know, he's, he's not going to do it anymore. Was it a surprise? Was it something you saw coming? And uh, how did you, and you can't speak for everybody, how did you... You know, handle that. Um, well, you know, it was definitely a curveball. I can't say I didn't see it coming. You know, we were all spending so much time together. Um, and Jans was living in Portland, um, juggling a family and touring like crazy. And, you know, we were rehearsing in Colorado all the time. So, like... Whereas we would come home and, you know, we could like, we could sleep in our own beds for a few nights and then just go to a rehearsal and a writing session, Jans would have to fly out. And so it was just super taxing on, on, you know, his situation. And the road is 
fucking tough. You sure know? Is, yeah, man. Um, takes some of the best guys. Yeah. Know? It takes them out, so. And so, it's never like a shocker when someone wants to get off the road. It's kind of like, oh yeah, I totally yeah. get why you don't want to do this. Because we're all crazy, kind of. You know what I mean? Um, to be doing this this long. Um, so, yeah, it was a curveball, but, um, you know, we split amicably and, and, you know, Jans is the best. And, um, so he, he has more time for his family now and, and we were kind of just like, okay, well, let's find a singer. Right. And, um, uh, I think Joey kind of spearheaded that, just kind of reaching out to a couple other of our, our, our homies in the scene, like Turquoise guys and the Lettuce guys. And um, one of the names that kept coming up, especially between those guys, you know, the Lettuce and Nigel. Um, yeah, all the Portland guys, and, Zoid and Nigel. Yeah, Zoid and Nigel and, um, and all the Turquoise guys, because Lau was living in, in New York for a little while. Okay. Met a bunch of those guys. Um, they kept telling us, oh, you got to check out Lau Dominski's. And yeah. this is crushing, like, soul singer in you know, white boy in Portland, Maine, we're like, sure, right. <laughs> you know, we didn't, we didn't think he was going to sound like that, you know, um, by that description, you don't expect him to sing like that, um, and then we heard his stuff, and we we're just like, damn, this dude is killing, and uh, we caught him at, inter- at an interesting time, he had just made his second record, yeah. which like has a bunch of cool guests on it, like Louis Cato's on it and everything like that. He like put a bunch of money into the, the studio time and everything and then like had all this merch made. Record came out and then we picked him up and we're like, you want to join our band? We're hitting the road, you know? And and so he never did like a like an album cycle or anything for his that, that record that he put out. Um, and uh, we just scooped him up and then so he's been in the band just crushing it ever since. And now that, that was like 2017, 16, around then? 16, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, we um, we were making our last record before, uh, Totem. Right. Um, and we had some songs that we were, you know, the rhythm section takes were, were pretty much together, but we didn't really have like a shape of the tune. We kind of had like some parts. And we sent him these demos, and he sent back... Um, like the truth and fool no more just finished in like two days harmonies like the lyrics were great it was just like he just crushed it and we were like okay just fly out here let's like let's meet and like play and then probably just we kind of just booked him on the tour and we had we hired like a couple of our um tiny shylock and paul Crichton to be like background vocalists we were like we think this is our guy, but we don't even really know. We're just going to book him on the tour, and we'll have other singers there just in case. And then it was obvious right away that yeah. he, was, he was the fit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you guys have great chemistry, and he's such a front man. Yeah. You know, like he prowls the stage with a lot of confidence and uh, sort of like an understated swagger. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like, it reminds me of the, you know, it's like yeah. a white boy, blue eyed soul. He just sounded so smooth and, you know, Lyle's one of those, and his solo records are money. Yeah, Kunj is a big fan of his R&B yeah. stuff, so he put me onto that. And Zoid, too. So that brings us to the here and now. I feel like um, there is, even though there's consistency, like, 
death and devotion is a, a leap in a lot of ways from totem. Mm. Um, embracing this sort of like disco soul kind of like the huge sweeping backup vocal harmonies and really uh, grandiose elaborate sound that it's like no one really doing that you know yeah yeah um, you know the um, the trend has been whatever they call it, like living room funk Right. Oh, that sort of Wolf thing. Yeah, kind yeah, of. You know, the trend has volume. has gone towards you know, which is so hip and it's yeah. it's great. Uh, but they have jumped the shark. Music's good. Yeah, but the whole aesthetic. You know. Yeah, I mean, I like it. You know, because it's their own thing. Yeah. But it's uh, but it's not it's not everyone else's thing. You know, it was it worked for them, and now it's a kind of a, a thing that everyone's trying to recreate, which right. never works. Uh, for us, we were kind of you know. We liked some of the huge disco with strings and yeah. a bunch of layers and you know stacks of synth and harmonies and um, you know there's some stuff that's a little more pared down depending on the situation uh, depending on the tune um, but we wanted to go big on on a few things you know like, yeah like highly compatible you know yeah big big disco tune with and lots of layers and and right out the gate sets the tone you know, yeah like an opener so. Mm-hmm. Just, but I think that it's it's a step in a direction where no one else really is doing that. And so I think to, to be contemporary, to not just be some throwback shit or play a bunch of covers, you really got to do your own thing. Yeah. And you guys have tried that through the years, whether it be embracing the Afrobeat before that became like super celebrated again and Fela had his own musical and all that. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys were in front of that. I mean, and, and now with the whole like, sort of disco and it also kind of reminds me of that sort of Philadelphia sound that sort of like Teddy Pendergast sort of really pimp player yeah aquariums and the platform shoes yeah, exactly. and shit yeah you know and that's my language so it's, yeah it's fancy yeah you know? <laughs> yeah we love disco man like yeah. we love um you know we love the late 70s like even early 80s yeah um, type of funk like we're huge Whispers fans right and on. that stuff really kind of walks the smooth line but it's just so dirty and grimy that was just kind of the nature of, of you know the production at that time but um, but it also just naturally works because it's something that not everyone is doing right. you know like we lettuce sounds like lettuce like you know right. people no one else they're they're emulated now because they they have such an identifiable sound um but uh you gotta like find your own thing right you know right. and uh we kind of just naturally did um and it has kind of just become our sound and made us identifiable how know, about right? those vocal harmonies is that is Lyle writing those or like those big swelling disco yeah that yeah. stuff that's what really set that and the string parts are what kind of takes it from the sort of jam funk world into this own lane you know yeah it also makes it more authentic yeah it's um def- there's definitely a strong r&b influence yeah. you know and and even like some some new soul um 90s r&b was lyle's shit yeah you know, that's his that's his jodeci that kind of stuff <laughs> exactly oh, yeah. i'm gonna know it if yeah. ever comes on the show, we'll go deep down. Yeah, that yeah, that's that's his shit. So he loves those those big lush harmonies, yeah, you know, stacked stacked vocals. Yeah. Right on. We gotta talk D'Angelo sometime. Uh huh. You know, oh yeah, that's my dude. 
Right on, man. Well, this has been really exciting, man. And, uh, you know, I learned learned a bit. I want to learn a little more, though. I feel like we've hit the motet pretty good. Um, before we... I want to hear about some... Any other stuff you got going on? Um, you know, I know you got your own, like, Jalbatross project, um, which I feel like you told me about way back in the day when we actually met face-to-face mm-hmm. at Purple Hatter's Ball. And right, right. I got that grassroots motet, <laughs> yeah, which right. I still have. I love that shit. Um, but that's when we kind of connected and... Uh, I don't know if you were doing that there. Probably not, but you you'd mentioned it or you were like active with it at the time. Is that still a thing? Yeah, well, so it's funny you say that. This is a good time for me to like um, mention that I'm going to be kind of like digging back into that stuff a little more. Um, we've been touring nonstop, so it's been hard to just like find a day or two at home to do some writing, but um, just did a couple shows with uh, the East Coast iteration of Jalbatross and I've got a new batch of originals, um, so the plan this year is to cut a record, um, cut a Jalbert Trust record with my brother, Colin Jalbert. Um, what does he play? He's a drummer, right on. great drummer, um, and uh, he's just great at everything, like production, he's very like tech savvy, he does these like live video chops where he's doing like live drum triggering, like audio and video at the same time that sounds insane um, yeah and so he's just you know he's he's just very skilled in a lot of different ways so i'm looking forward to making music with him that's kind of the main motivation is just to like spend more time with my bro and actually play original music because jalbatross was playing a lot we were doing we had two weekly residencies that i was juggling out in denver oh okay we were doing you know so motet was playing you know, over a hundred shows a year. And then I would come back and do every Monday in Denver, every Tuesday in Boulder, and then like leave on Wednesday to go back on the road. And so it was insane, but I also didn't even have time to like work on much original stuff. So we're, you know, we're always kind of doing covers and doing whatever, but, um, I stopped playing Jabba Trust stopped playing because I just wanted to Sleep um, when we, you weren't on the Yeah, road. <laughs> I wanted to actually rest and find balance in my life, which, you know, it was it was definitely, around that time, was was out of balance. Um, and uh, But I wanted to wait until I had original music, you know, so so that's that's okay. what we're going for this year is original. I'm stoked to hear music. it. Yeah, it'll be fun. And uh, when you talk about getting in the studio, where do you do that, in, in Boulder, in Denver? Um, not sure yet. We might do it on the East Coast. Okay, um, is that where Colin is? That's where Colin is, and that's where... Because uh, in my mind, I wanted to do it with my some of my like favorite East Coast buddies. Sure. Um, you know, uh, so I kind of wanted to like take it back to the roots a little bit. That's that sounds awesome. the vibe for the project. You got plenty of Colorado music. You yeah. Know, you know, so. Yeah. And that would make it really authentic. That's true, some hometown yeah. shit with the fam. Yeah. You know. Who else do you do you do that with besides your brother? Um, Wherever West Coast, or Colorado or East Coast, right? Um, Darby Wolf, yeah, he's player. Oregon. Yeah, he played with Alan Evans for a while, right? right yep. Um, and Tim Philpot, okay, nasty bass player. And so we all kind of like cut our teeth together back in Western Mass, um, playing our first like jazz gigs together and stuff like that. Um, Darby also did some cool shit with DJ Williams. I saw. Not yeah. Long ago. Yeah. Yep. And now he's playing in that band, uh, Band of Killers, with like, Where? Uh, with uh, it's like Alan Evans and um, Nate Edgar and um, I forget who else in the band, but um, Killing Band. Oh, Dar- Darby's. Side bands, yeah, Darby's super nasty. 
Um, That's cool, man. So yeah. That sounds like a, a good opportunity for you to put any ideas that aren't appropriate for the motet, motet that are just like your thing. Now you have an outlet of original, you know. But I get the idea of like, man, you guys go so hard with the motet that when you're home, like, you might not want to pick up the guitar. You might not want to like at least very go into the studio. But, but you know, having the carrot be your bro and a record exactly. of music it gives you a goal and yeah something to be stoked about well that's awesome man we'll be looking out for that um please do we'll be looking out for you know anything we need to know uh for the motet moving forward any plans or anything you want to i would say what's the rest of your year like but it's two more nights where you got us is seattle or portland or something uh just doing seattle for right. new year's well, and then what? And then we have about? a whole winter-spring tour planned where we're doing some, some Colorado mountain dates. We're going to be back in um, doing some other like West Coast stuff, Oregon, and um, doing um, Crystal Bay. And then we're doing some, uh, some East Coast stuff. We're going to the Southeast. We're doing Atlanta, Boston, South Carolina. Oh, we're okay. just, yeah, we're just... And then it's festival. <laughs> we know it's festival time. And then it's festival time. All right. So it's... Yeah, it's pretty nonstop. But well, anytime you good. find yourself in the Bay, Motet or otherwise, you know, let us know. We'll love to come out. Um, I decided in 2020, I'm going to ask the question at the end of the pod for everybody. That's not about them, um, but just give them an opportunity to shine a light. So, any kind of artist, you know, music or otherwise, you know, usually I would imagine it's music, but any artist that the audience might be, you know, that that's really you're stoked on. That the audience might be either unaware or maybe they know who they are. They don't, you know, just like what's in your headphones now or what, what is getting you through the days. You got any new hot shit you want to tell the folks about? It could be something old. But. Oh wow, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, recently my listening has been all over the place. You know, from like um, Square Pusher, Kenny Burrell. It's pretty consistent. You know, it's just. It's all over the map. Uh, one band that I that I fell in love with recently is this band Alton Goon and um, Word. I'm not familiar. Tell me more. Yeah, they. Um, I think it's like Turkish, kind of funk, pop funk. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Alton Goon with an A. Yeah, it's a uh, A L T I N and then G U with uh, what do you call it? The umla. Um, the umla. Yeah, Maybe I have heard of them. I'm not sure, but I certainly haven't heard them. So uh-huh. that's the tip. The, uh, they're really cool. Um, oh well, um, we were talking about this. So this guitarist that I love, uh, near, oh, yeah, yeah, near yeah. Felder, um, who and, I'm going to see. N I R near. Yeah. Okay. Near Felder. Near Felder. And you randomly ran into him or something, or saw him on Instagram? And I saw on Instagram that he is in San Francisco this weekend, and since we're here playing the Fillmore, I just reached out to him through his website and um he's playing with maurice brown um so i'm gonna go he he just hit me right back and he like gave me his phone number and like invited me to his birthday party (laughs) tomorrow and everything like that um you know if there's any guitar nerds listening to this podcast definitely check out near felder near felder well if he's Um, playing with maurice you know he's a cat yeah you know he's heavy yeah and after your gig the other night maurice played uh came up played like one solo at the boom with uh uh will Bra- will blades crew oh nice freaking murder but yeah i'm gonna you know maurice is here for five nights so i'm gonna get over there for the late show but i'm glad we got to sit down i'm glad you got to share some of your uh latest faves with the people 
But most importantly, I'm glad you got to tell your story, at least some of it. I feel like we left a little on the table, but, you know, maybe in a year or two down the road, uh, we'll sit down again and, and catch yeah, up too. and we can go deeper into the, some of the old stuff and, and find out what happens between then and now. But yeah, man, I think I was a little late on death and devotion. So I'm going to say that publicly that I, it's fucking heat. And I really love um, just that you're doing something different than everyone else and like and not pussyfooting around. You like all the way in on the disco soul. Yeah. And, uh, works man i Thanks, saw the man. people I appreciate boogie and, that you know it transmits live seems like you guys are really weighted towards the totem and death to Devo- the death and devotion material yeah because obviously that's our favorite stuff. right yeah right, right. so yeah it's and working we'll, man yeah we'll have a new record out this year we're already working on it so well let us yeah. know and we'll definitely play like you know a song or snippet or whatever you want you know in the meantime maybe you'll slide me some java trust if you have anything we'll later and play a little of that too all right well we're going to get going. we got a big night of music here in the Bay. I want to say thanks to everyone listening. And, of course, a big thank you to Ryan Jalbert of thank the you. Motet. Um, you're listening to the Up for Life podcast in San Francisco, California. I'm your host, B. Getz, and we'll see you next time. Can we hear a little bit of it, gang? You got to get up. Yeah. yeah. Got it in, straight into the board. Rolling. Indeedy, want to say thank you to the homie Ryan Jalbert of the Motet, who was kind enough to uh, meet up with us in downtown San Francisco for that informative and interesting and introspective powwow. So yeah, check out the Motet, Death of Devotions, the new record. You can always check them out live in concert because they are perpetually on the road, as you've heard Ryan discuss. So yeah, really grateful that Ryan was able to sit down with me and we look forward to having more coverage and conversations of that nature as we move forward in 2020. And as I mentioned, lots of exciting things happening with the Up For Life podcast. So, you know, keep in touch. B.Getz at upfullife.com. Leave a review on the iTunes page. Stop by the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash upfullife. Get up, get into it, and get involved. And with that, we'll move to the customary segment at the end of every episode, which is the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. This is something I'm going to continue doing as long as I'm able to. Um, I like being able to play full songs and lots of music here on the show. So with that, we're going to get into the JBs. Now you're hearing more mess on my thing. That's a the title track of a release that just kind of got on my radar. Apparently it's been out or available for a couple of years, vinyl only. It was a record store day special three or four years ago. The JB's Mess, More Mess on My Thing. 
and it's basically their demo tape for James Brown the uh, the now and again records record store day exclusive is a mythical three track set that compiles uh, mess of my thing a once thought lost demo recorded by the group including a 18 year old Bootsy Collins and his brother Catfish they did it at King's Studios in uh, 1969 so it was previously unreleased unavailable as well as the unreleased instrumental The Wedge which is kind of like some blue note rare groove and then it uh, finishes up with the 22 minute version of When You Feel It Grunt It If You Can and that's your Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. So we're going 22 minutes with the JBs. You're going to hear them come out the gates with Let the Music Take Your Mind, Cool in the Gang. you also hear them touch on uh, interpolations of Stevie Wonder's I Was Made to Love Her, Power of Soul from Band of Gypsies, Chicken Strut by The Meters, uh, The Beatles something. I mean, it's just it's an absolutely fascinating, crystallized moment in time. And all my musician friends who I've uh, pinged and said, hey, check this out, were like, holy moly. So it's really uh, just just diamond that was unearthed and was previously only available on vinyl. It was digitally uploaded just before New Year's, sometime in December, I believe. And you're going to hear it for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. I'm going to give you a little Bootsy solo real quick right now. is when you feel it grunt if you can by the jb's 1969 on the up for life podcast wrapping up episode 26 in the mix 2020 coming at you b gets the up for life podcast and we'll see you next time